0: This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Alright, well, thanks a lot, Sebastian, for um, spending time going through training on discipleship. You know, discipleship is probably one of the most important things that we need as a church. And if you've been coming for the last few sessions, I don't know how you're holding up. Um, Perhaps your energy is starting to run a little bit low. Um, We've been having session after session, but I think most of you are wide awake. How many of you are are awake right now? Okay, that's good. Um, No, one person says no, okay. Which means you're probably awake. (laughs) All right, well, thanks a lot for being here at GYC. You know, at times you wish you could make time stand still. And GYC is one of those experiences. Um, You're on a spiritual mountaintop. You're spiritually blessed as you hear these messages. And then you've got to go back home. And oftentimes it was like that for Jesus' disciples too. They wanted to stay on the mountaintop, but then Jesus told them to go down to the valley because that's where the work was. So while you're here at GYC, soak up everything you can. Get the best of your experiences. Attend every workshop Um, Go for the morning devotionals, the evening devotionals, go for all the seminars, make the best of your time here. But then beyond GYC, think about how you can take what you've learned here and implement it at your local church. You know, it'll be shame for you to be revived in your time here, but not have anything for you to take back to your local church. You know, we come here to GYC and we think we're on a spiritual high, but what happens beyond this? Do you have to wait a whole year before you can come back to get another spiritual revival, but then during the year you go through a spiritual slump? I don't know if you can experience that or if you can relate with what I'm saying. But don't wait just for the revival experience. Take what you can, learn practical skills, and then implement it in your local church. Turn your churches into lighthouses for God, and then come back and report how God has blessed you, and what you've learned here at GYC. If you've been coming for the last two sessions, um, Sebastian's been going through the life of Jesus and his example of discipleship. Um, Whereas for my sessions, it's been a little bit different. Um, I remember when we were talking about uh, how to match our sessions, um, there's a little more correlation. He was going to look at the life of Jesus. I was going to look at the life of Paul. Um, And we we have been doing that to a certain extent. And I hope you've been blessed as you've gone to different workshops and learned different things. My topic for today is discipleship explosion. And if you came for the first two topics, the first topic was my personal testimony in how God led me into a life of discipleship, Um, leading up to baptism and what happened beyond that. And in my last topic, I talked about the need and urgency for discipleship, Uh, looking at practical ways and how Jesus actually spoke about how we can actually live a life of discipleship. We looked at the Great Commission, we looked at the lives of the early disciples, and then we also looked at the life of the Apostle Paul and saw how Jesus outlined a master plan on how to make disciples. Uh, Today we'll be going a little bit beyond that, and so if you've been coming for the first two sessions, this last session will make a lot more sense to you, because we've been leading up to this last session. This last session is going to be intensely practical. So it's something concrete, you have the theoretical knowledge, but now we'll give you the opportunity to learn the practical part, and how you can take what you learn here, and implement it in your local church. Okay, so let's bar our heads for a word of prayer, and we'll invite God's presence to be with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank You for the wonderful experience that GYC has been for us as we've gone to the morning devotionals, as we've heard the testimonies, as we've been to the evening devotionals, as we've consecrated our hearts to You. Father, we ask once more that Your Holy Spirit would be in our presence, the Spirit of God, the Comforter, which You promised 2,000 years ago, that the Spirit would be in our midst today especially as we look at this most important topic, our final topic on discipleship. I ask that you take everything we've learned and make it sense for us to use it in our local churches when we return home. So I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, just not too long ago, I'm just going to see if this works. Not too long ago, I had a chance to go for the general conference session last year. How many of you had a chance to go for the GC session? Okay, I see a few hands. If you haven't been, I strongly encourage you to go Um, in 2015. I had a chance to go as a volunteer um, for Andrews University. And during that time, I had a brief encounter with uh, the newly appointed uh, World Church Secretary, G.T. Ng. And at that point of time, it was just a brief conversation. I didn't think um, too much of it. I I just thought it was a privilege to be able to speak with him. But it wasn't until I actually returned back to university and I was doing a class on discipleship that I realized how significant that meeting was. Because during that class, we were handed an article of an interview with G.T. Ung. And G.T. Ung is responsible for monitoring church data, membership data, all across the world. And he was telling the story about how in one certain section of the world, he saw that in a given year, the church membership shot up significantly. But then when he looked at the data two three years later, he realized that that same section had lost 13,000 members. Now, if you were in G.T. Young's position, would you be a little bit afraid? You see a large growth, a large spike, but then two or three years later, that same growth reverts and goes the opposite way. And he said, I had to ask myself why. Why was this happening? And the only conclusion he could come to was that we confuse membership or, deci- or baptisms with discipleship. Now, if you came yesterday, I would, have ex- I would have explained a little bit more on the difference between baptisms and making disciples. In the Great Commission, Jesus did not only say, Go ye therefore and baptize, which is oftentimes what we normally hear, but Jesus said, Go and make disciples. There's only one command that Jesus gave, and that was to make disciples. You make disciples by going and baptizing, evangelism. But secondly, you also need to teach them everything that Christ has commanded, which is training. So evangelism plus training equals discipleship. Is that clear? Okay, so we're going to go a little bit into this in more detail again. I'm trying to see how to get this started and running. Okay. No wonder then that Jesus said in the book of Luke, chapter 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, recent surveys revealed that about 50% of people that used to fellowship in your church no longer do. You know, one thing I was amazed by is when I first came here to the U.S., you see on church membership data that there are approximately, say, 500 people. But when you go to the actual church, there's maybe only about 150 people who come there regularly. And you can probably relate with what I'm saying. It's probably happening at your church too. And you've got to ask yourself the reason. Why is that happening? You see people who once used to fellowship at your church, but no longer do. We realized yesterday that if you evangelize alone, without training people, you leave them as spiritual babes. And the result is an eventual fallout from the church because they have not been discipled. They've not been taught how to study the Bible for themselves. They haven't been taught how to pray for themselves, how to share the Word of God with others. Whereas on the other hand, if you focus solely on training without evangelism, you find that people become spiritually obese. You know what I mean? Like they come to GYC year after year after year, but they aren't actually practicing their faith. And so during the year, there's no evangelism, there's no Bible study, but then they always come back for more and more training. You get all the head knowledge, but you don't know how to put it into practice. I don't know if you can relate with me on this. I think as Adventists, we are obsessed with knowledge. You know, we want more and more knowledge, more and more theological knowledge. And studying at the seminary right now, I find that it's the same there, too. You know, I was serving as a Bible worker for two years prior to coming to Andrews University to go to the seminary. And during my time as a Bible worker, I found that I was zealous for God. I found that I knew the Bible more back then than I actually do now. It sounds like a paradox, because even though I have more intellectual knowledge now, I felt like back then I had more for heart experience. Because by sharing the Word of God with others even though my knowledge was less, I found that it was experiential knowledge. And the zeal I have for God was not the same when you fill your mind with just pure theological knowledge. And I think sometimes we become so obsessed with more and more knowledge that we don't actually get a chance to practice it. And practice is just as important as receiving new knowledge. So evangelism combined with training is just is what will lead to an explosion in our church. Jesus said, For the Son of Man is come to seek and save that which was lost. And we also looked at the book of Acts, and we saw how the disciples came together. When Peter preached that powerful sermon at the time of Pentecost, 3,000 were baptized. But we realized that that's not the end of the story. That was just the beginning. If you look at the life of Paul, when he came into Ephesus, he conducted an evangelistic series for three months, but then he spent an entire two years in that region just training the newly, con- the newly baptized converts. So when you look at it in terms of proportions, three months for evangelism, but two years for solid training, and that led to the disciples uh, converting and evangelizing to others, while Paul was still in one place teaching and training the disciples. As the disciples came together, they were discipling one another. They did that by studying the Apostles' doctrine. They did that by fellowship and the breaking of bread, by spending time in loving relationships. But they also did that through spending time in prayer. And we saw the result was that God added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now, just to give you an overview of the definition of discipleship. Okay, there's many things you can talk about but there's four critical things when it comes to defining what exactly discipleship is. You know, a lot of people try and define discipleship, but I believe it comes down to four key things. The first thing is that it requires an intentional training and equipping of disciples. The second thing is that it requires forming relationships based on love and accountability. The number three, third thing is that it's an ongoing process to bring disciples to spiritual maturity in Christ. And finally, is to train disciples to teach others also. Okay? So, you firstly, as a disciple-maker, you need to look for someone to disciple. Didn't Christ do that as well? In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, it says, And He ordained twelve that they should be with Him, and that He might send them forth to preach. The first criteria is that Christ realized that he needed to spend time discipling 12 other disciples who could continue the work on after he left. So the first prerequisite is that we need to form loving relationships. And one way we looked at how the early church did that was through forming discipleship small groups, okay, where they could intentionally spend time training and equipping other disciples. And then those small groups were also a great way to form loving relationships and develop a sense of accountability. Then that leads to, or the natural result is that leads to spiritual maturity in Christ. And then finally, the fourth stage is that when you become spiritually mature in Christ, the natural result is that you'll want to share Christ with others. You know, so many times, if you were to organize an outreach program on a Sabbath afternoon, and you said, hey guys, we're going to go and give Bible studies, how many do you think would actually turn up? Yeah, some say one, or probably a few. Now, let me ask you a question. If these are members, or if these are newly baptized people, why isn't there a zeal to share God with others? Have you ever asked yourself that question? why is it just one or two people who are so active in our church while the rest of our church is quite happy to sit back and listen? I think next year, all of you should be giving a presentation. What do you say? Instead of just being recipients, we should be able to use what we learn and share it with others. And so I'll just go on to... Sorry, this thing is... Thing up a little bit. When Paul was writing to Timothy in his epistle in Second Timothy chapter two verse one and two, he said, "You, therefore, my son, when Paul was writing to Timothy, he wasn't writing to him as if he was a work colleague. Sometimes in our churches we treat each other uh, so cordially, so politely. We see them once, a sab- once per Sabbath, once a week, and then we don't." relate to them during the rest of the week. It's like we have separate lives during the week, and then for that one day in the week, we come together again. But here Paul, when he is discipling Timothy, referred to him as his own son. In order for me to call someone my son, even though they aren't my natural son, it would mean a sense of affection. It would require a sense of love. For that person to realize that I am calling them my son, it must mean that there is an intimate relationship between Paul and Timothy. You realize that that relationship was built on love and accountability. But not only that, Paul tells him, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know why Paul was able to say that to Timothy? Because Timothy had already matured into a spiritual and godly man. So when Paul invested and poured out his life into Timothy... He was able to say, maintain that same level of spirituality which I have given unto you. And so spiritual maturity in Christ is critical as a disciple of Christ. But then he says, and the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses. Paul, in his mind, was able to recount all those instances when he'd actually taken time to train Timothy. How many of you can say you have a spiritual mentor in your church? Is there someone that you can look up to who actively spends time to disciple you? That when they go out for Bible studies, they take you along with them? When they go visit other members, they take you along with them and show you how it's done? When they're conducting prayer ministry, they take you by their side and show you how to lead out in prayer ministry? We may look up to people in the church But how many people have actually spent active time discipling us? I believe Paul understood the secret to discipleship because he spent quality time with Timothy. And in his mind, he could recount specific instances when he could say, and the things which you have learned from me and heard from me among many witnesses. He then says, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Sharing Christ with others. And so for this session, we're going to look a little bit at our Bibles too. And so if you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. And I want you to notice something powerful here. Because this is the secret to discipleship. Everything that Paul learned, he learned from the life of other disciples, but also from Jesus as well. So we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. And notice what he says when he's writing to the early believers in Thessalonica. He says in verse 5, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. When Paul preached the gospel to them, they heard the word of God. And they were convicted by the word of God. But notice what happens in verse 6. He says, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost. So the first step was that they had to hear the Word of God. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So the first step is that they needed to hear the Word of God. When you conduct an ev- evangelistic series in your home church, you invite people for the first time who've never heard the Gospel. But when they go through the evangelism, you realize that they've now heard it. But the second step is that they need to receive it. Paul says that they became followers of them. And then in verse 6, he says, and in verse 7, he says, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. So here what Paul was saying was, not only did you hear the word of God, not only did you receive it, but they actively started to live out the word of God too. But then notice the result in verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. Now, was Paul the pastor there and telling them exactly what to do for every single part of their life? No, Paul simply discipled them, and they did the work after that. Wouldn't it be great if our churches were not that pastor-dependent? You know, sometimes all our church members are so dependent upon the pastor that they aren't able to do anything themselves. But here what Paul did was, he preached the Word of God to them so that they heard it. They then received the Word of God by becoming followers. Thirdly, they lived out the Word of God. And then fourthly, they naturally began to share the Word of God with others. People hear the Word of God normally, they receive it, but generally in our churches, they're not taught how to live out the Word of God. Because if they get to that step, the natural progression is that they'll want to share the Word of God with others. It's only natural. If you want to know what discipleship is about, I encourage you to read the book of First Thessalonians, because this is a book on discipleship. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. I want you to turn now to chapter 2. In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul said, For we know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. How did Paul actually conduct himself with the Thessalonians? He reveals a little more. If you read the Pauline epistles, Paul's letters, you'll find that in the first chapter of his letters, he often gives an overview. He gives you a big picture perspective. But in the later chapters, he then goes into more detail. And that's exactly what he's he's doing now. In verse he says but we were gentle among you even as a mother cherishes her children when Paul went into a new place he did not just preach the word of God but he got to know the people individually he got to know them by name he ministered to their needs he knew exactly what their wants were and he fed them spiritually on a one to one basis He says, we were gentle with you, as a mother cherishes her children. Now, I'm not a woman, so I don't know if I can relate to that fully, but there are many girls in this room. You know what it's like to spend quality time with someone else. You know what it's like to truly love someone else. You know, they say men have cold hearts, whereas women have warmer hearts. And that's why God put a man with a woman, so that the man could learn from the woman. Okay? But Paul said that in verse 7, we were gentle among you as a mother cherishes her children. And he says in verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. Notice what Paul is saying here. He was not content with just preaching the word, but he said, I devoted my entire life to you. Why? So that he could see them perfected in the character of Christ. That was Paul's goal. If you read his epistles, he was not just content with preaching the Word. Today, we sense that evangelists only preach the Word of God. But they don't go beyond that. Paul says that was just the first step. There are three more steps that happen after that. He says, I devoted and I invested my entire life into you. Why? Because I would not be satisfied until I saw you perfected in the character of Jesus. Has someone invested that kind of time in you? Has someone taken an interest in your personal life such that you can say truly that someone has not only preached the Bible to me, someone has not only given Bible studies to me, but someone has actually taken time to perfect the character of Christ in me. Not many of us can actually say that we've had that experience. And truly, that's what discipleship is about. When Jesus said, Go ye therefore and make disciples, that's what he had in mind. Not just to preach the gospel, that's only the first stage, but to impart the character of Christ to others so that the natural result is that they cannot help but share what they've learned. If you experience the character of Christ, you cannot contain it within yourself. You want to share it with everyone else, because you've experienced the love of Jesus, it's transformed your heart and your mind, and now you want to share it with someone else. It's not just head knowledge, but it's something practical. Notice what he also says in verse in verse 11, "As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth." his own children. First Paul compares discipleship with that of a woman being gentle to a child, nursing an infant. But then Paul says that he also took the role of a father to exhort, to comfort, to charge them. You need a mother especially when a child is born, don't you? When a child is first born, when it's just an infant, the mother is far more critical the child is dependent on the mother. Why? Partially for food, for milk. Paul says in second uh, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. When we are first baptized, we also need the milk of the Word in order that we might grow. But we're not called to just be spiritual babes. Paul realizes that as a father, he needed to exhort them, he needed to correct them. Why? So that they could be trained and become mature. If a child is just allowed to do whatever it wants, do you think it'll be spoiled? If there's no discipline, if it's just freely given uh, what, whatever it wants, I think that child's going to be pretty spoiled. But Paul realized that beyond a spiritual babe, they needed to mature and grew up so that they could stand on their own feet. And then from there, they could teach others also. Is this making sense to you? And he says, we need not speak anything. That was the result. Paul had finished the work in that region, such that the disciples were able to continue the work after he left. We saw that Paul always worked in a team, because it was not a solo effort. He trained other people on his team. He perfected them in the character of Christ. And then they went out together and evangelized to new areas. In this case, they went to the Thessalonians. They found believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And then the Word of God spread to every place. Not because Paul was preaching the Word of God everywhere, but because the disciples were actively sharing the Word of God wherever they went. But something critical is that the Word of God was centered in each stage. When they preached the word of God, the word of God was present. When the people received the word of God, the word of God was present. When they lived out the word of God, the word of God was present. And then they needed to share the word of God. The word of God is critical in every stage of discipleship. Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, "...go therefore and make disciples of all nations." teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, the word observe in the original Greek language is tereo. Now, if you look up that word tereo in the rest of the New Testament, you find that in a specific place in Acts chapter 16, verse 23, when Paul and Silas were in prison, the prison guard, the Philippian jailer, was instructed to bind them in chains such that they could not be released. And you know the word for bind in Greek, the same word is used, tereo. When Jesus was saying, instructing them and teaching them to observe all things, it's that same kind of idea, to have the word of God locked up in your minds, firmly placed in your minds, such that it cannot be, such that it cannot escape. The Word of God was to be so central to our being that it's something that would completely transform us through the Spirit of God such that we would become active, living disciples for Christ. Many times in our churches today, the reason why people remain spiritual babes, the reason why they aren't able to give Bible studies to others is because the Word of God is not central to their life. It hasn't saturated their minds. It hasn't brought true transformation. And so, they're not able to live as a true disciple as Christ would have intended. Notice what it says in John 6, verse 63. Jesus said, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. The Bible was given to us by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All Scripture is given By inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So the Word of God is inspired through the Spirit. If you look at the original Greek text, when it says that the Word of God is inspired, literally it means that as God breathes. Isn't that something exciting? When you open up the Word of God, it contains power in it. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says, all, uh, He says, For the Word of God is living and is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. In 2 Timothy, he also says, That is God-breathed. When you open up the text for yourself, you're allowing God to speak to you through the Spirit. We saw yesterday that being filled with the Spirit of God is no different to being filled with the Word of God. It's not some kind of, um, you know, it's not some kind of spiritualistic uh, possession that overtakes you. That's not what being filled with the Spirit of God is. Being filled with the Spirit of God is being filled with the Word of God such that it's transformed you and the Holy Spirit's function is simply to illuminate your mind through the Word of God. The Word of God was inspired by the Spirit of God, and it is God-breathed, this power in God's Word. And by partaking of the Word of God through Bible study, it results in life. I don't know how many of you have fasted before, but if you've fasted, you know what the experience is like. You know, you feel extremely hungry, and you can't wait till your next meal. You know, someone told me that when you fast, that's God reminding you that you need to pray. And I think that's true. But when we fast, we recognize our need for God. We recognize that we're hungry. We also realize that if we don't eat enough, we're going to be malnourished. And chances are, we may die eventually if we don't eat at some point of time. It's the same with the Word of God. When Jesus said that the words I have given to you, they are spirit and they are life. If we're not regularly partaking of God's Word in our morning devotions, if we're not centralizing the Word of God into our lives, if it's not a core part of our being, chances are that we are going to become distant and more distant from God. Chances are we're going to alienate ourselves from the Spirit of God. And that's the reason why many people fall away from our church. Why? Because they've not allowed the Word of God to become central to their lives. And that's what you find what Paul was doing. It was a central part of his ministry. It was to allow the Word of God to become the core part of the disciples' being so that he would no longer need to train them any longer. They already knew how to live out the Word of God. All they needed to do now was to share the Word of God with others. There are many reasons for us to memorize Scripture. The first reason is that God commanded it. If you look in Proverbs chapter 7, verses 1-3, to 3, um, there, the wisest man who ever lived said, My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live, and my law as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tables of your heart. The Word of God was not just supposed to give us intellectual knowledge. It was supposed to be drawn into our hearts, such I could read to conversion. He says, write them on the tables of your hearts. In Job chapter 22, verse 22, Job says, receive, please, instruction from his mouth, and lay up his words in your heart. It also helps us with overcoming temptations. In the book of Psalms, chapter 119, verse 9 and 11, King David said, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? And then he says in verse 11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. Can you see that in overcoming temptations, in guidance in life, the word of God is to be central, is supposed to be in the core of our beings, such that it can enable us to live spiritual lives. When it comes to receiving power in prayer, Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, verse 7, If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Repeatedly we sense that God is emphasizing again and again in the Old as well as the New Testament of the centrality of the Word of God to lead to transformation of heart and mind such that we can become active living disciples of Christ. It helps us in witnessing It gives us strength for the end times. It enables us to overcome deceptions of Satan. But it also enables us to come close to the heart of Jesus. In John chapter 5 verse 39, Jesus said, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. So when you memorize the word of God, it's not just an intellectual process but you are taking the character of Christ and putting it within you. I said in our last session that when you take the Word of God and put it in paper and ink, you get the Bible. But when you get take the Word of God and put it into flesh, you get Jesus Christ. But if you take the Word of God and put it into your mind and into your heart, you get Christ living in you through the Spirit of God. That's what the infilling of the Holy Spirit is all about. It's not something mysterious. It's not something that you need to spend your entire life studying out before you can come to a conclusion. The infilling of the Holy Spirit is nothing more than allowing the word of God to saturate your mind such that it leads to conversion and transformation. But scripture memory alone is not sufficient. The Pharisees that memorized the Bible. In fact, if you wanted to become a if you wanted to become a Pharisee or a disciple of a Pharisee, you needed to have memorized the entire Torah. Now, that's a pretty significant undertaking. And only if you were able to memorize the entire Torah, could you be assigned to the very best Pharisees, who would then take you under their wing, and then start to train you and disciple you. Jesus was a different kind of rabbi. He was a different kind of teacher. Different to all the other Pharisees. Because he did not just focus on intellectual knowledge, He focused on heart conversion. Beyond Scripture memory, we need to be able to meditate upon the Word of God. Look what it says in Psalms 1, verses 2 and 3. But his delight, this is referring to the righteous man, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, That brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Whenever you hear the word meditate, it's often followed by a blessing. By meditating upon the Word of God, it leads to spiritual life. Scripture memory alone is not sufficient. You need to meditate upon it, such that it becomes an active part of your being. Scripture memory results in being internalized when you meditate upon the Word of God. And in First Timothy chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says, Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. When we meditate upon the Word of God, Paul says the natural result is that you will grow so much that it will be evident to all others. You will be a shining light for Christ to all other people. You know, when, I remember when I became an Adventist about five and a half years ago. I used to look at all our greatest evangelists. I used to look at all our greatest Bible teachers. And I asked myself one question. What separates me from them? Do they have a natural advantage over me? Were they born in a different way to how I was? What causes their difference to my difference? And why is it that the majority of our church are comfortable to simply sit in the pews and not do anything? That's a question I asked myself. And I said, I don't want to be content with just being a spiritual babe. I want to grow beyond that stage. And I realized that the reason why people have grown is because they've realized the need to become an active disciple. They've somehow discovered Bible principles and they've lived it out actively in their own life. And God, as a result, makes them abundant and fruitful in their ministry. And I believe the same can happen with you and I. We don't have to wait for the next evangelist to come to town. We don't have to wait for the next preacher. But you can be the next person that's filled by the Spirit of God and used in a powerful way as well, simply by following these key principles. But what happens beyond meditation on God's Word? The last stage is that leads to application. It's one thing to memorize God's Word. It's another thing to meditate upon it. But it's an entirely different thing to look for ways to apply the Word of God in your daily life. In James chapter 1, verse 22, James says, But be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Wouldn't it be a shame If we come to GYC, and we hear all these great messages, but we don't apply it in our lives. We're inspired and we're convicted by the Word of God, but once we go back home, we forget everything we learned. A true disciple is not content just with hearing, but a true disciple is someone who actively looks for ways to live out the Word of God. In John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus said, to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If you continue in the word of God by applying it, it leads to setting you free. It sets you free from sin, it sets you free from, from spiritual declension, it gives you freedom because you live an abundant life such that you can share with others. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, it says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Ezra did three things. He memorized and he meditated. He applied the Word of God by doing it. And then finally, he felt he was qualified to now teach others. He realized he could not teach others unless he had memorized and he would meditated upon the Word of God until he'd applied it and actually lived it out himself before he could start to teach others. And that's the acronym MAP. Meditate, Apply, Pass It On. Okay, Can we say that together? MAP. Meditate, Apply, Pass It On. Very simple. That's discipleship in a nutshell. I'm just going to show you the fast track. There are four stages to living as a disciple. The first step is that we all come in as unbelievers. We need to hear the Word of God. In First Peter chapter one, verse twenty three, it says as it says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. When you take the word of God and implant it within you, it's incorruptible seed. It's something that's going to germinate and bring forth life, not only within you, but in someone else. The second stage is that we need to receive the word of God. In first Peter chapter two verse two, he says, being born again not of sorry, he says, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that he may grow thereby. All babies need milk in order for them to grow. That's why Peter compares spiritual growth with drinking the milk of the word. The third stage is that we need to live out the word of God, and that's where discipleship comes in. The weights are there because not only do you receive the Word of God, but you need to put it into practice. You need to start living it out, exercising it by sharing it with others. And then finally, you've become a worker for God. When Jesus called for laborers, it was not just for spiritual babes. He realized that there was a series of steps that we needed to go through before we could become an active, vibrant worker and laborer for God. And the text for that is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 where Paul says to Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, one of the greatest joys of becoming an Adventist was when I was introduced to carob-coated vegan cake. Have you ever had that before? No? You've never had carob cake before? Okay, you've got to try it sometime. It's, It's delicious. But you know what? As healthy as carob cake can be for you, if you had to eat the whole cake by yourself, chances are you're going to have indigestion. The reason why someone gives you a cake, a birthday cake, is so that you can share it with others. You're not supposed to eat the whole thing for yourself. If you do, you're probably pretty greedy. Yeah, It's the same with the Word of God, too. If all we do is keep eating it, keep eating more and more and more, but we never share it with others, chances are it's going to lead to spiritual indigestion. But God has given us the Word so that we can share it with others and thereby experience further growth. And that's what it means to be a worker or laborer for God. This is the big picture. If someone is baptized in your church, you need to be asking yourself, or even for yourself personally, have you been through each of these stages? You came in as a believer, you were baptized, but have you moved on beyond that stage? Have you started to live as a disciple? Has someone trained you in how to become a worker for God? And so in FAST, which is a discipleship training program, the first, the first series is a five-week program which is called Survival. It teaches you how to survive and thrive as a Christian. Each week you learn one new memory verse, and it, it teaches you the fundamentals of Christianity, how to overcome temptation, how to study the Word of God, and um, how to work in a small group setting, such that you can have accountability. The second stage in fast discipleship training is that of basic, it's called basic training. And that's an eight-week training program where you not only memorize two verses per week, but it teaches you the fundamentals of what it means to live as a disciple. It teaches you how to study the Word of God, it teaches you how to keep a prayer journal, it teaches you how to witness to others, and it teaches you how to live an obedient life. Those are the four key elements of living a spiritual life. And then finally, you have Team Tactics, which teaches you about spiritual leadership, teaches you how to launch out your own small group such that you can train and disciple other people as well. Okay, so the first one focuses on scripture memory. Second one teaches you about practical discipleship. And then finally, the third one, Team Tactics, teaches you about spiritual leadership. Okay? And... In terms of starting a fast team, looking at Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus looked for specific people. If you read through the Gospels, there were multitudes of people who were called disciples. But there were only 12 out of those multitudes that Jesus chose to actually train and disciple on a daily basis. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says, Jesus spent the whole night in prayer before he ordained the twelve. He spent an entire night in prayer to select those who would form the core part of his team. The criteria is to look for those who have FAST. Now, what does FAST stand for? When you're looking for those who to disciple, when you're starting your own discipleship ministry and you want to train others in your local church, there are four key things you should pray for that other people will have. The first is that they're faithful. The second is that they should be available Or accountable the third is that they should be spiritual and then fourth they should be teachable if they're lacking in these principles chances are they won't go through the program okay we've done fast discipleship training in the past and oftentimes people who are not truly committed right from the start are probably going to fall out in the middle of the program because they find it too hard so you're looking for people who have all these criteria and then you move on form a small team And then you start training them, investing your life in them. Part of the selection criteria comes from Luke chapter 14, verses 28 and verse 27. Um, Just due to time, I'm only going to look at this one verse. Let's look at Luke chapter 14, verses 28 and 27. Luke chapter 14, verses 28 and 27. Okay, in verse 28 he says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether you have sufficient to finish it? And then in verse 27 he says, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In order to be a disciple for Christ, it requires sacrifice, it requires commitment. Being baptized should not be confused with being a disciple of Christ. If you were to walk downtown Houston, and if you were to see a building that's only half built, what would you think? Would you think that there's something fundamentally wrong here? If you were to speak to the builder, and you realize that that builder ran out of funds, and so they could not actually construct the whole building, you'd probably think that person was a little bit crazy. Shouldn't they have done their homework? Shouldn't they have thought about all the funds that they would need to construct the whole building? Shouldn't they have seen if we needed all the leaders possible, all the laborers possible to actually construct that building? It's the same for us when we follow Christ too. If we have not truly understood what it means to be a disciple of Christ, chances are we're going to fall by the wayside. Chances are we're not going to take seriously what has been given to us. And that's why Jesus says, that unless you truly sit down and count the cost of what it means to be a disciple for myself, of Him, meditate upon what it truly requires to be a disciple of Jesus. He says you cannot truly become a disciple of Him. There are sacrifices that will need to be made. There are certain commitments that you need to make in order to follow Jesus. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, it says, "...and they shall speak further unto the people." And they shall say Which man is there That is fearful and faint hearted Let him go and return unto his house Lest his heart faint As well as his brethren's heart If you embark on a mission If you want to receive training As a disciple of Christ But you're not truly convicted yourself If you're faint hearted Chances are you'll be discouraged midway But not only will you be discouraged Chances are you'll discourage everyone else in your team too. It is better to count the cost first before you engage in following after Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we find that this is a passage saturated in love, Paul's love towards the early disciples. How does Paul express his love for the Thessalonians? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Here, let's look at verse 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2. Paul says, And we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. Paul was not sure how the Thessalonians were doing. You see, he preached the word of God to them, he knew that they become followers, and he knew that they start to live out the word of God, But now some time had gone by, since Paul had seen them. And he was concerned for their faith. He wanted to know if that fire that once burned with them was still active, if they were still zealous for God. And so Paul says, we sent Timothy to you for that purpose. The one who could best represent Paul was Timothy. In fact, if you read in other epistles or other letters of Paul, he said, I, I'm not going to send myself, but I'm going to send my equal, which is Timothy. Paul completely trusted Timothy because he'd invested in his life. He discipled him such that he knew Timothy was spiritually mature in Christ. But notice what he also does in verse 10. He says, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Night and day Paul used to weep for the believers. Do you spend time in prayer for the church members in your local church? Do you have that same kind of burden that Paul did for the believers in his church? To the point where you're praying for them night and day. You're so concerned for them that you cannot even sleep at night. You're so concerned for their well-being that what they received is not sufficient. You're not satisfied that they were just baptized into the church, but you want to see them spiritually mature in Christ such that their faith can be perfected. And then finally, he says in verse 11, Now God Himself and our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way unto you. Paul wanted to personally visit them and check up on them to keep them accountable. And see how they were doing in their faith. And finally, Paul wrote them a letter. You know, there are five P's to showing your love towards someone else. The first is PC, or sending them an email. Write to them, let them know how, ask them how they're doing. The second is to write a letter to them, or send a postcard. The third is to give them a phone call. Check up on them, see how they're doing. Send them a text message. And there's two others as well. Five different ways in which to show your love toward other believers. Sending them an email, sending them a postcard, giving them a personal visit, praying for them, and then also sending them a text message. Five different ways of showing your love toward someone else and expressing that you're taking time and investing time in their spiritual growth. Just to summarize then, there are certain elements we need to keep in mind to know what discipleship is all about. The first one is that the Word of God must serve as the foundation of discipleship. The second is that we need to help believers take in the Word of God through scripture memory, meditation upon the Word of God, and then finally application, living it up. We need to disciple people in a loving environment, in small group settings, such that we can keep them accountable. We can know them on a personal level, not just in a a church setting, but we actually take time in small groups, actively engaging with them. The fourth is discipling them in a team for accountability. Fifth is building commitment through biblical values. And then sixth is prioritizing discipleship in our church. And that's what's going to lead to growth. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.